Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for Broken City. There's some wars you fight in, and some wars you walk away from. This is the fighting kind. Green Sally up, and Green Sally down. When I was elected mayor, this was a broken city. Tell me things haven't changed. You know who I am? Yeah. Step by step, I've been getting it fixed. That's all right. Calm down, okay? Tell me things haven't changed. Here's our guy. Mr. Mayor. You, in my eyes. Hero. Thank you. You ever do any hunting? You should try it. You would be a natural. I'm not sure I'm following you, Mayor. I need you to find the son of a bitch who's sleeping with my wife. Done. All right, Katie, you're my eyes. What do we have? Oh, I got him. And it's good, Billy. You have an envelope of photographs that I paid for. When you called, I didn't think it'd be for something like this. I think you're about to see the bigger picture. This is what you do now, Billy. You set up executions. I gave him pictures and walked away. This is not what you think it is. You ever think why I chose you? Because I own you. something that your average citizen just wouldn't understand. The system broken, the schools closed, the prisons open. We ain't got nothing to lose, everybody we rose. I need a moment. He's a dangerous man, Billy. He only knows people that kill people. You're gonna walk away. That's the deal, Mary. I suggest you take it. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Nelson George, and tonight's guest, Alan Hughes. Hello, everyone. How are you? It's really good to be here at the Apple Store in Soho. And I got to tell you, um, Alan is a, a really old friend of mine. I've known him since he was 19, and I was 19. Not really. Um, and so it's a, you know, a pleasure to see his evolution from Minister Society, which came out 20 years ago, to where he is now as a filmmaker. And I think I just want to start the conversation was, let's talk a bit more about this film, Broken City. It's, it's a New York City story, and some critics are already comparing it to Sidney Lumet, who made The Great Prince of the City, and Serpico and so many great New York stories. What attracted you to this material? I think uh, the script, number one, is a great story, great narrative, wonderful characters, had uh, a lot of twists and turns. It was kind of a house of mirrors, nothing is what it seems, you know, as you're walking through. And um, I guess they say the Sidney Lumet thing because those were all great stories. It was all about the cast. It was all about the characters. And they rarely make those type of films anymore. Well, it's also it's interesting that this is your second film set in New York City, Dead Presidents. That's right, the in the period, in yes. the 70s, right? So uh, your people associate you with California because of Menace. But you've actually done as many movies in New York as you did there. 
when you look at your body of work now? Well, the interesting thing really is that Menace, 20 years ago, when the 20th anniversary of Menace, that was the last contemporary film that I was a part of. And Dead Presidents, obviously, is a period piece. Uh, American Pimp is a retro right. piece. Uh, From Hell is a period piece. Book of Eli is a future period piece. Right. And so it was, it was comforting to get back into the now, you know. I mean, I want to talk. One of the interesting things about this film is that um, it's a rarity in that you have a black director, and a lot of people don't know the, the the screenplay was written by a young black writer out of Chicago, who was a playwright, first produced screenplay, I believe. Yeah, it, it was a spec script. Uh, obviously, that means that it was he wrote it. It wasn't in a studio. It was on the blacklist. Of, you know, the best unproduced screenplays in in Hollywood, and. Um, it was it, that that never happens, or it's rare that it happens where something is that that great, and um, it's not set up somewhere. Um, and I was looking forward to meet when I read the script. It was so sophisticated and so grown, and 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 the mayor in the script too. He was really into exotic scotches, and I, <laughs> I, I found that striking. I was like, well, I can't wait to meet this. This 58-year-old white man is going to teach me about <laughs> scotch and politics that I don't know and whatever. And I met I met Brian Tucker at the Palm. I was early, and um, this uh, young man, very young, he looked like he was 19, black kid, uh, out of Juilliard. I didn't know, you know, walks towards my table and I go, I'm like, you know, it's the wrong table. And he's like Brian Tucker. I go, oh shit, you know, <laughs> you know. Well, tell he, me about the whole journey. How do you find? I mean, I, I remember you were with this material for a long time. You've been with this, trying to get this movie made for a while, haven't you? Well, it was, it was, it felt like a long time, but uh, you look at Book of Eli, it was 2010, we're 2013 now. I got this script maybe six, seven months after Book of Eli was released. So it took a year to get it up and going. And in, uh, relative to other films that, you know, it wasn't that long, but it, it felt like forever. I want to talk a bit about, about Mark Wahlberg because not only is he evolving as an actor, but he's become a real powerful producer. I mean, he's he's involved obviously Entourage, but also um, uh, what's this HBO great HBO Boardwalk Empire, yeah. <laughs> um, and he produced this film. Yes, he did. In fact, when I I read the script and it was it, this has never happened. I read the script and I was like, to page ten, fifteen, twenty. I was like, uh, why does Mark Wahlberg's face keep popping off the page to me? And I go, well, it must be Mark Wahlberg, you know? Um, and I sent it to him, and two weeks later, we were sitting in the room. He, he saw exactly what I saw in the screenplay. And, um, you know, he, I thought it was better if he came on as a producer because he would make some calls that maybe I couldn't make. Um, and, I, and I always find it interesting that more um, great, uh, big movie stars don't become pr producers because if they call someone, all they got to do is make a couple calls, people pick the phone up. They just got to make maybe three calls through right. the whole film filmmaking process. And Mark is probably the, the rare exception that, that understands that concept, and he makes more than three calls. So uh, the cast is quite impressive. Russell Crowe, Ms. Zeta-Jones, Jeffrey Great, Jeffrey Wright, um, I want to talk about Russell Crowe in particular because I think I'm a fan of Russell Crowe's, but I think from my point of view, he hasn't been pushing himself, let's just put it that way, the last few years. And he seemed like, I think this is one of his best performances in a long time. Talk about you know, the care and feeding of a movie star. How, he's a guy who's talented but hasn't really done a great film in a long time. 
How do you approach working with a guy like that? Well, I think the most important thing in working with actors is um, making them comfortable, you know, and, and, and relaxing them and gaining a certain amount of trust. Trust, And I think when they see you're honest, too, you know, and, and, you, and, and you're in it for the right reasons, you know, they can feel it. And I, I, I liken uh, great actors to racehorses, and every racehorse has their cocktail. You know, this you you gotta you know you gotta do different things. Whether it's talk to him, you know, before we start shooting. Whether he needs a tea, this type of tea. Whether he likes to see a, an attractive girl. I'm not talking about him. I'm just talking about any any even actresses. They you know they might want to. I don't know. They might want to listen to some a certain kind of music. You just gotta figure out what it is that puts them in their comfort zone. And these are the intangibles, you know, because I think acting and a, a director's relationship with an actor is a lot like also a trainer and a boxer's relationship in the middle of a prize fight and you see these these matches and you know maybe the guy hasn't been doing what he's supposed to do when he comes back to the corner and the trainers that over talk mm. that guy goes back out and gets his ass beat yeah <laughs> and so as a director you have to figure out a way to keep it simple and make just tiny adjustments but when it comes to great actors like Russell Crowe and you know, Catherine's really, really got a presence, and she's she's really good at what she does. And 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 ha I don't know, she has an interesting ability. You know, mm -hmm. Mark is seasoned a seasoned pro. Jeffrey Wright, I mean, oh my God, you know, uh, Barry Pepper, even Kyle Chandler, these are people. When you cast them, um, I'll just uh, do a John Houston quote. Um, he said one time, um, "I've had control of my casting throughout my career." So I haven't had to do, to do much directing. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's that simple, really. It's really interesting because 20 years ago, Menace was mostly uh, young actors who were just emerging. Even Sam Jackson has a small part. He's within a relatively newcomer to film. Um, and you've now worked with, I was looking at your list, you know, Johnny Depp, Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe, Mark Warburg. That's a pretty intense... Gary Oldman. Which one, which one, Gary? Book of Eli. Book of Eli. The fact that you forgot the bad guy I'm already. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just saying that that's an impressive group of, of actors to deal with. Are there, is there a, through, a through line or, with the work, or is, there, is every experience with every actor different? Is it a different relationship? It's like uh, with anybody in, in, in that you have a relationship with, everyone is different, you know, but the common theme or thing actually is, you know, when you find uh, a certain amount of kinship with an actor. And you can always tell when you, you know, for me, like for instance, I can tell when a, when a woman walks down the street the way she's walking, whether I'll connect with her, just in her body movements, you know. That's me though, you know, I don't know if every filmmaker's like that. You know, I can tell in people's body language whether I'll get along with them. And then when you start hearing them talk or they're in an interview or you, you, you know, you track, you gotta, as a filmmaker, you gotta track talent too and you go, oh, you, you see him in, you know, the actor's studio, say, or whatever it may be. You may be interviewing them, and I go, oh, you know, I, I think I'll connect to that person. So I try to make sure that I've done my homework, and I do my homework perpetually anyway with that. I'm always clocking things, and that's what happened with Mark. Um, it was well before The Fighter came out, about a year or two before The Fighter came out, and I was clocking him. I was like, there's something happening with Mark. You know, he's coming into his own, and it's a different zone that I had not seen before, and I was like, I I think I want to work with this guy now. I've always been a fan, and uh, when I saw The Departed, I said, oh, all right, this is, we got to work together, you know. 
Yeah, I think Mark Wahlberg's one of the interesting journeys. I mean, he went from Marky Mark, you know, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, the Calvin Klein Gene ads, which we all remember, and then an action star. And it feels a bit like he's becoming a real multifaceted leading man. Not just a guy who's in, in an action movie, but someone who can carry a movie emotionally. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about Mark, and I, I, I knew he had a talent. I knew he was talented. I knew he had an intangible thing going on, too. But I'm not going to name any names as far as guys in his range. But what I found shocking working with him is he can be funny. He can be, as you said one time, un he is unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, he can, he's edgy. His improvisational game is insane. Mm. On the fly, he can come up with anything, you know. And in this film, too, he did something I haven't seen an actor do in a long while. There was three different types of women that he had to interact with that were fully realized whether it's the mayor's wife, Catherine Zeta-Jones, whether it was his assistant, Katie, in the office, and his aspiring uh, uh, actress girlfriend. Um, they were so different. They were just completely different women, and he knew how to interact with each one in a meaningful way. And I, there's not a lot of mean, leading men that can pull that off. Uh, big movie stars, uh, no matter how talented they are. So Mark can... He's, you know, his, I, I call him Stevie Nash on the set sometimes because his all-around game was, and his ability to, his court vision too. And he, he can do, you know, you look at Ted, you go, wow, you know, <laughs> who would have thought he could do that? You know, can we talk a bit about him and his, his extras and the act? Because I actually visited the set a couple of times, and you're going to see some action scenes with Mark where it looks like, wow, this is really realistic action. He looks like he's really hitting that guy. And I believe, according to the director here, I believe Mark really was hitting some of these guys. Yeah, you know, it's a complicated story to get into, so I won't get into all of it, okay. but um, I'll just say this. I've never experienced a, and never heard about it in a, in a film where, um, you know, you use stuntmen usually, or you, you say to an actor, look, I'm gonna slap you just a little bit, and you, you make it look like a slap. There's some beatdowns in this movie. In fact, every beatdown in this movie, he really was beating these people up or getting hit himself. There were some ribs fractured. There was some noses bleeding. There was purple and blue bodies. And um, I've never seen that. Now, some, you know, most of these guys were his associates. Right. <laughs> so Mark has his friends who, who become, they volunteer or get paid to get hit. Am I, am I uh, interpreting yeah, this correctly? You're pretty good at describing what was going on. Um, uh, you know, but you know, there was a there was a point in the movie where he he was sober for seven seven years in the movie. He's sober. Right. He sees his girlfriend on the screen doing something at at the premiere of a right. movie that really unnerves him. And at the after party, he falls off the wagon and starts drinking. And he literally that night we went out in the East Village with no light and just shot Mark just going nuts and tearing stuff down, throwing forty bottles at passing cars, trying to get in people's cars and. And then he got in a fight with a black dude in a hoodie. And, <laughs> and this, is mean, all, this is improv. This is not it's all him just making it up on the spot. You'll see it in the movie. And the, the guy in the hoodie he was fighting, they, he was connecting on Mark, too. It wasn't just Mark. In the movie, you'll see Mark really going in it. But right. Mark caught a few at the same time. So, so what happened with that? Did you, did you stop it later and say, oh, excuse me, this is a movie? What, did, what happened with that? With Mark? With that guy. What happened with that guy? The fight? Oh, it, fortunately, he knew the guy. <laughs> Unfortunately, he knew the guy. But when you see it in the movie, it's so ill, just to see a a a, a white man and a chunking with a with a black guy in a hoodie, just randomly. <laughs> and I, you know, it gets back to menace. It's not funny, but 
um, random violence, you know, and the way violence really happens when it, when it does happen, it's so random, it's so quick, and it's over in a second, you know? Mm. Um, and I'm glad he stepped up and added that layer of realism in a movie like this, you know? I was going to just segue back and talk a bit about Menace, 20th anniversary, and the visceral impact of that film, 1993, it's quite remarkable. You did that film with your brother, and you've done subsequent documentaries and features. This is your first, you've done, I know you've directed commercials and, and videos by yourself, but this is your first full-length feature without Albert Hughes. How strange was it? How difficult was the transition or not for you? I think the, the most difficult thing was the meetings in Hollywood, not having my brother in the meetings because it, they tend to, in this business, uh, have eight executives or eight something in the room. There's eight individuals and they're ganging up on you. And um, or when you're taking any kind of meeting in the business, you know, there's them and then there's you, you yeah. know. And, and when I have my brother by my side, and the twin thing too is just becomes a juggernaut type thing, right. you know, where one guy's talking and doing something and you're, and you're watching and figuring out what it is that, and then once he's done, you're going in. So it wasn't the filmmaking process that I was uncomfortable with, it was the meeting process that was mm. like, oh, okay, I, I haven't experienced this before, so, yeah. So, and, and just so, are you ever gonna, what, where are you now? Is, that gonna, is the Hughes Brothers thing over for now? Is it just gonna be Alan Hughes going forward? No, it's, I think we're, I mean, I know we're always gonna collaborate. I just got back from Prague where he lives, as you know, <laughs> um, and, um, I was shooting an ad out there. We sat down a few times. He made dinner for me. And um, the bottom line is we talked a lot about our projects, our solo projects, and how we're going to fulfill the same role for one another. It's just going to be one captain of the ship per project. And it just it keeps things cleaner that way. And, and we're, we're getting ready to do something with HBO, I think, that's interesting. And we're doing that together, you know. So it's not over. You know. It's interesting because I remember I visited the set of Menace back then and then even uh, from hell. You guys had this amazing, I've never seen this anywhere else. You guys would be shooting, I guess one of you would say cut, and you would look at each other. And one of you would go talk to the camera guy and one of you would talk, I guess Albert usually talked to the camera guys, I remember. And you would talk to the actors and it was almost like you guys had a tele tele telepathic connection. Yeah. It was extraordinary. Yeah, I mean that's a twin thing and that's something that most people just won't ever understand. And the only thing you can liken it to is you've been in a relationship and a marriage for 10, 20 years. You kind of know each other's body language and what, you, what, you're, what you're feeling. But the twin thing is a little different, you know. Sure. And there is a literal, uh, almost telepathic thing going on. And here's the biggest misnomer, I think, too, is, you know, like a rock group, you may have Jimmy Page playing the guitar, and you may have, uh, you know, Robert Plant on the lead vocal. But when they're in the studio, everyone believes that Jimmy Page comes up with all those riffs and that Robert Plant comes up with the lyrics or whatever it may be. No, when you're in the studio, everyone's writing. You never, knew who, never know who came up with that riff or that melody or that hook. Um, you know who's famous for it, right? And the interesting thing about Albert and I is that we discovered a menace. There was a story, but I won't get into it, where he wouldn't talk to an act, actor. Right. And, um, Crossed the line, and we figure, you know what? It's cleaner if he, because he's more into the the technical aspect. If he talks to cameraman, and I talk to the actors, so it just made it on the set simple. But in the editing room and in prepping, you know, 
I can be visual, and he, he's come up with some of the most remarkable act, acting notes or things that he thinks should happen character-wise. So that, that's, that's what it is. No one's ever, no one ever, they, they always get that wrong. Sure, you know? sure. Yeah. Um, to, another thing to talk about in, in light of the anniversary of Venice is the early 90s, in retrospect, was kind of a golden age for black film. Right. Uh, Spike Lee was regularly making movies. Uh, Singleton out of LA. I mean, there was a, from like Spike in, let's say she's going to have it, 86, 87, right through 93 into 95, there was a lot of work. There were a lot of black films being made. Um, and obviously, th that's a long ago era. Um, you've now made a couple of, well, Denzel, you did the Book of Eli, futuristic movie that had Denzel, but really wasn't, race wasn't really a big part of that. You have Jeffrey Wright has a prominent role in this, but race isn't really a big part of the plot. Are you, is that kind of cinema over, do you think, in terms of mainstream Hollywood? Is that something that you, would you re-explore and do, uh, explore what's going on with the characters in Menace now? Or where do you see that for you personally, that, that exploration? That's, I mean, that's a pretty deep question because, you know, it's, it's multi-layered, really, because you go, what is a black film? Sure. You know, 20 years ago, we knew that. You know, right. now you go... You look at this movie and you know the end of this movie and you yeah. go, well, to me, this is the ultimate black film. <laughs> once you once you see it, you know, and you know, and the fact that Brian Tucker wrote it, and you know, you look at uh, even Dead Presidents. I remember, you know, that starred Lorenz Tate. I remember a lot of critics going, you know what? This is the first time I've seen a movie that the the character is black. It's a uniquely black experience, but it's not about him being black. And for my brother and I back then, and particularly for me now, you know, I always say, it may sound corny, but when, when in years and years from now, when uh, Oprah Winfrey leaves us, uh, <laughs> years and years from now, they're, they're gonna say, they're not gonna say she was the greatest black daytime talk show host, they're gonna say she was the greatest talk show host, period. You know, had the, the biggest show ever in daytime television. She transcended her race, her culture, just as Barack has. And I think as any, whether we're Latin, whether we're Asian, whether, you know, black, I think the, the thing that is most important and is, gives your culture the most, mm, I don't know, it celebrates your culture the most is to find a way that you transcend your culture, but yet represent your culture in a full-bodied way. And if you're not doing that, if you're just in the corner and they're just thinking of you as black, or they're just thinking of you as Latin, or Asian, or Muslim, or Hindu, um, that's boring, you know? Well, let me, let, me, let, me, let me follow up on that, though. So, is it possible that, that, that you would do a film like Menace uh, now? I mean, there's so many issues going on in the young black community. Uh, in Chicago know, right now. So I don't know. It, it, I mean, is that kind of, for for established filmmaker like you? Does that mean those doing those kind of story are not as relevant to you now, or is that something that you might? I mean, I think that's the question a lot of people are asking about. And there's a lot of talk this year. Three three of the films nominated for Best Picture this year have race as as part of the story. Lincoln, Django, and obviously Beast of the Southern Wild. Race is a big part of the American experience. So. Are there other ways in which we can explore that as opposed to calling it a black film or a white film? Of course. And, you know, I definitely plan on exploring that as well. You know, uh, I think that sometimes you, one, whether it's in business or in the arts, you know, you have a chip on your shoulder because there's who you are, there's 
what people think you are and there's who you want to be. And you're lucky if those are all mutually exclusive, you know, they rarely aren't, you know, so one spends their better part of their career trying to prove that you're not what people think you are, you know, especially after a movie like Menace. We would walk into executives' offices and a lot of these people thought we were carrying guns and knives and, you know, we had crack cocaine in our pockets and, and I didn't dig that, you know, and I didn't dig that. I also, what I didn't dig is that whenever, now see, this is interesting, they, they think, this is this movie's real, and yeah, they 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 know cinema, but it's so real they have had to experience it because black people can't do this without actually experiencing it, and I experienced that from people, you know, and the business. I go, well, so we we can't be artists. I mean, yeah, we are. They did recognize the movie and its artistic merits, but they also coupled it with. Oh, they, they can only pull this off because they experienced it. So that was the chip on our shoulder and going, all right, well, let's go do From Hell. Let's go do something where it has nothing to do with the hood or whatever, but it is another hood. You know, Absolutely. the world is a ghetto. So <laughs> all ghettos are the same, you know. Oh, why okay. don't you set up the clip? Yeah, the clip, you know, it's funny that, they, that I'm even wanting to show this clip because it's, it's the final face-off that everyone pays to see between the two actors, you know, and um, they've edited it so it doesn't expose uh, much. But it's when, in the third act, Mark Wahlberg's character, Billy, knows he's been played by the mayor, and he's on come now, confront him, and tell him, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you down. So that's what this scene is. What can I do for you, Billy? I don't know why you hired me. Stick with the adultery narrative. It's sexier. Yeah, lies are always sexier. Unfortunately, I've had enough this week to last me a lifetime. I hired you to investigate my wife. Investigate her for what? For not minding your own business is for what? For having a big mouth is for what? For asking too many questions is for what? You better be careful following her example, Billy. I might have to hire someone to investigate you. Yeah. You're good, man. I'll give you that. You got it all worked out, huh? Perhaps that's why the people keep electing me, Billy because I simply get the job done. So all this, it was all for the city? Everything I do is for this great city. I chose you because I own you. All right, so we're gonna take questions from the floor from folks. Uh, you haven't talked much about the woman in the movie, but I'm real interested in The women, there's, there's more than one. Plural. Well, plural. Catherine Zeta-Jones is one of my favorites, and my perception has been recently that she spent most of her time staying at home and raising her children. To make this movie, how much time did she actually spend in New York City to make the movie? I think a lot of us are, are surprised at sometimes how small a period of time it takes to make a movie. Well, because we shot, I think, you know, uh, I can't remember what the total weeks were in this film. If it was 10 weeks, we shot all of the exteriors here in New York, three weeks in New York, and we shot the other seven back in New Orleans because of tax incentives, obviously. Catherine was out here of that three weeks, maybe five days she shot. <laughs> it's interesting because she did one big scene out here on a, on a balcony of top of a, a hotel with New York City backdrop. But she spent the better part of her first couple weeks, whether it was here in New York or New Orleans, just doing uh, uh, what they call it, shoe leather scenes, where she's just walking here, walking there, because Mark is uh, spying on her or uh, observing her as a private detective. And it was so funny to have this million dollar actress, multi-million dollar actress, uh, 
great movie star and, and oh my god her presence in, in person is even more so than on screen you know for the first two weeks you're working with her she's getting in the car she's going in the house she's walking through the the bronx botanical right. gardens i didn't even know that thing existed <laughs> that was kind of cool um so she, you know that's what it was uh and you why don't you talk about the other because there's a couple of other female parts that are very central particularly yeah. the assistant yeah i mean there's this this i won't call her a newcomer but this is a breakthrough performance for her, her name is alona tal and she's israeli actually and you wouldn't know it she speaks she like she's american you know um but she is just incredible in this movie. She's the girl in the office that in every classic film noir private Girl Dixon. Friday. Yeah. Here's the here's the one he's overlooking for, you know, this one. Um, and she's incredible. And this is like a, a, a game changing performance for her. And it's you know, another thing, my, my I was raised by a single mother who was a feminist and a radical feminist at that. She's the head of her chapter of uh, now, her chapter of ERA, and she also was the president of the rape crisis hotline and you know imagine being a six seven eight year old ten year old child and then your mother's doing all that you know and I think like a feminist and I, I'm probably the only feminist man I've ever met outside of my brother <laughs> so every time I see a movie uh, or do a movie I'm just trying to make sure that the that the that it is a woman that she is a woman you know or if it's a young girl that she is fully realized which is difficult you know um, and I'm, you know, uh, and I praise James Cameron for his early part of his career. You look at, you know, his films, whether it was the Alien, and Terminator, the Terminator. You look at The Abyss. Right. You know, I mean, this this man, even uh, uh, Titanic, uh, even Avatar. You look at this man, what he's what he's done with women in in huge cinema, and I don't think he gets enough oh, credit. And the for Alien that. movies with Ripley. Oh my God, yeah. you know. So. Is that not another question? I think. Seeing your works in, you know, uh, from hell, Minister Society, and the president, you always like tackling a good, actually dark subject, and you make it really well. Uh, so when you got actually offered the live action of making Akira, I got really high hopes of make, you know, how you're gonna turn into the film, but you actually dropped out on that. What was the main significant reason well, that you- Well, that was actually his brother. Yeah, I, I, we I were both on it at first. Were, yeah, first yeah, yeah. he was. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I mean, you know, you're t you're, you're talking about the, the that anim. I don't know how you say that that anim that style of animation that film we all were so obsessed with back then. Uh, anim Japanese anime is that? Yeah, yes. and, and you know, we all were taken by storm with that film, and when we were developing it, we go, oh, shit, this only works in that medium. There's first of all bringing it to America and trying to make it in New York City is impossible. All the, all the things that were great about it is because of the culture, which the backdrop was, and those rhythms and, you know, it really wasn't a narrative too. It kind of went, it was a narrative, but it wasn't a narrative, you know, so it, it, I thought it was dishonoring it to, to remake it, to tell you the truth. And I knew, I said, this doesn't feel right, you know. Um, working with your brother so close and now I'm breaking out on your own, when you went in to direct this movie, well, you, uh, your mindset was like you wanted to put a stamp on it so that when people see it, you were totally separated from your brother? Yeah, there was a part of that. that you know, when, when you're even siblings, you know, think about, you know, everyone in here who has a brother or sister, maybe close in age, too. And, you know, remember your brother and sister, 
you know, if you, anybody can relate to this, especially when you're a twin, if I said something to someone or had a confrontation with someone or talked about someone's mother and the next day he got slapped in the alley for it, you know, and so you live your life with siblings that are close to you, if, and if they're close in age, and all you do your whole, you know, adolescence and into your young life, you know, you go, I just want to be, be me, you know, and I think any, everyone can relate to that. So with this film, you know, I, you know, I just sat back a little bit and I look back, I reflected back because it's a trip being 40 and making Menace at 20 and now it's the 20th anniversary. So it's very surreal. And you look back and I look at, man, uh, look at Menace to Society like a, a stiff Jack Daniels drink. And that's what it was. It was Jack Daniels. And I looked at this thing and I said, oh, this is, this is wine. You know, this is breathing. And let me sit back and let it breathe. And let me let it open up on, let the viewer and, the, and your palate let it let it set into your palate the way it, it you want it to. You know, I'm not gonna in, get up on it like the Hughes brothers do. And that was my decision was just to lay back, let these wonderful actors and this great script do its thing. And every now and then I had to get in there. It's like a basketball team. You you just pass the ball around if someone's hot, keep it on keep it in their hands. You know, keep feeding them. So was that was my say, thing. Say that yeah. you know one of the things that's interesting about this film uh, is I remember I met. I first met Alan and Albert when I saw their college student film, which was a non-sync sound short, and it was one of the most sophisticated filmmaking things I'd ever seen. I was like, my God, how old are these guys? You guys are probably 18 or 19. So they understood sound design at 19, 18 at a high, high level. And even when they did Minutes to Society, I remember showing, it was a two and a half million dollar film. Yeah, I remember yeah. showing that film to someone who'd made a 35 million dollar film, and they went, the sound design on their film is so much better than mine. These guys had an insane, they were somewhat prodigies. I mean, these guys, at one point, they had a laser disc player in their Jeep. <laughs> so if you got in your Jeep, they were playing laser disc and they would go like, listen to, listen to the bullets, or yeah. JFK. JFK, yeah. This yeah. guy, was, they were obsessed with the bullets hitting the ground on JFK. Yeah. So, yeah. so the nuances of filmmaking were something these guys had a grasp on at an am amazingly young age. You know what's interesting about that is someone recently asked me a question, and Albert was talking about this when I was in Prague. They go, didn't you see this film in 1920-something? Did you see this film in 1940, and it was a noir this, and it was noir that, and blah, 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 blah. And we're like, uh, yeah, I saw it back when I was young, but I'm not a cinephile. You know, there's people out here that know the details of every film, and Quentin Tarantino is a director that is a right. cinephile, yeah. which is, you know, Marty Scorsese is a director that's a cinephile. Um, and for my brother and I, it's like from the age of five, we were putting on plays, and once we got the, the camera, we were making movies, and yeah, we were pro digesting um, film noir very early, but it's it just innately in us, it's innately in me, where, you know, it, it just is, it just, it's not something, and back then, what you're talking about is, we were dissecting so much, you know, and. In, in today, it's interesting. I have a 21-year-old son. They're, they got everything going. They got the texting, got the Facebook, they got the I, what's the chat, and the, you know, they got the music. They got everything. They're doing their homework at the same time, you know. So I try to show, and it's it's not. Yeah, I try to show them a music video. I was sitting down with a, with a, with a young man, young brother from Oakland, and uh, my son went to bed. And this kid's 21. I said, you know, I started my career in Oakland. Oh shit, let me show you the first video I did. Me and my brother did, and then. Oh, shit, let me show you a Tupac video we did up in Oakland. So I pushed play, and this 21-year-old dude went, put, no, he pushes play, and he goes, so blah, 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 and starts talking to me. I go, oh, pause it. 
wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. And you want to be in filmmaking? I said, start it again. And he started again. And he goes, so Alan, no, 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 no. While it's playing, I said, you either going to watch this motherfucker or you're not going to watch it. All right? We're not talking. We're not looking around the room. You know, none of that shit's going down. So look at it or not look at it. And, I, and, and so I, I showed him three videos in a row, and it was very difficult for him to stay looking and, and I would say, studying or observing or processing without. So let me ask you a question. Um, and I said, oh, okay. And I'm not saying this whole generation's like that, because it's not. There are a lot, of, a lot of kids out there that are very focused and very uh, attuned, but, you know, I think that those who really stay focused like this and watch whatever the profession it is they're in, they're sitting there and they're, they're just like this and they're watching everything, they're hearing everything, they're gonna be the ones that win, you know? I read that you and your brother started making movies when you were 12. When did you know you wanted to be a real filmmaker and how did your, how did your um, childhood hobby, hobby turn into a career? That's a good question, young man. What's your name? Zachary. Zachary. You want to be a filmmaker? Yeah. That's a, that's a good, good question. That's a good question. You know, I, my, my mother, she also, I, I th consider my mother a visionary in a lot of ways and the way she raised us and she took us to see, she dragged us to see Gandhi, a film called Gandhi about Gandhi. Um, and it was, at the, I think it's like a three hour film, Nelson? Yeah, three hours. That was when they were still doing intermissions. Yes, um, right. That's and, right. Um, at the, we went to see this film, Gandhi, and whoever this man was on the screen I was watching, I was like, who is this? I've never seen anything like this. It's probably the first great performance I ever saw. Cause I, uh, uh, ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley. I, I was like, this man, this is the real Gandhi. So we started crying and bawling before the intermission, and we tried to get out of there, and we were begging our mom to, to leave in the intermission. It was so terrifying what was going on to these people, too, these Indian people. And she said, no, you're going back in there. You're watching the rest of this film, and no matter what, you're going to watch it like a teacher. You know, you're going to watch it. And it was that film that we realized what a performance was and a, and a great story was and it affected us on an emotional level then we i'm now i can't curse i know you're here then we screwed around and, and it's we a little late <laughs> it is. and we saw scarface at 12 and that's when it all opened up and it was like what is this this is what i want to do whatever <laughs> this is i want to do this and so that was we were around 11 years old um, and at the time, there were no examples of black filmmakers. Um, so we had a good mother, to, to answer your question, that would push us in the direction of our artistic interest and support that. But she wouldn't buy us Adidas tracksuits, which we wanted. She wouldn't buy us gold, what we wanted. She wouldn't buy us Adidas shoes, what we wanted. She wouldn't buy us any of the stuff that other kids were getting, but she would always invest into the interest and artistic you know, I wanted to play electric guitar. That showed up right away. But not the Kango hat I wanted, like LL Cool J. Is the question down here, right? In terms of talking about what is a black movie, or maybe we've evolved to the point where we're talking about race movies beyond just the black experience, what do you think about David Simon's The Wire and how he deals with race in that movie? And is that like an avenue in which we'll see more sophistication? You straight up, that was brilliant. 
I don't know how he pulled that off, especially when they would go down to the dope Dylan neighborhood and the nuances of that culture, which is not uniquely black, by the way. You know, <laughs> but I was shocked that I thought I, I think they trump menace in their realism. I really do in the nuances of the characters and the dialogue. I think that that put menace to shame, and so you have a white man um, who, you know. People have this, this, this thing about can white people direct black stories and can black people direct white stories. And here David Simon proved that that's not true. You, you, as long as you're, again, paying attention and doing your job and you know, also empathizing with that culture in a, in a significant way, you can tell that story. Hi there. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little, little bit about the rehearsal process, if you had one, with the actors for this film. If, oh, really, like if you worked with them and in what way? That's a good question. You know, when I started my career with Menace, there was a lot of non-actors and, and actors that were young, you know, and I found that I was like, I wanted to rehearse a lot, you know, like two weeks of rehearsals. And I remember one scene that w never made it into Menace, and I don't think anyone ever realized this. All the guys were at a diner. All the, the young men were at a diner. And O-Dog kept pointing towards the pictures and telling other people to order for him. And it was a scene that was uh, showing that he was illiterate. And they get into this confrontation, O-Dog, with the, with the Muslim character. And O-Dog right, right, pulls right, his right. gun out and puts it on the table. And what happened was I was so, it was such an interesting and challenging scene that I rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And come today, nothing. Terrible, terrible scene. Which was on the paper, it would have been great to put it in there, you know. And so now, when you cast, I keep pointing towards the screen like the movie's still there. But um, Russell Crowe and Mark Wahlberg, in particular, uh, when you when you when you got Denzel Washington and even Tom Waits in the scene, by the way, um, in, in in Book of Eli, um, or Denzel Washington and Gary Oldman we're not rehearsing anything. We're gonna rehearse on the set. These guys, and Catherine Zeta-Jones, they're pros. They do their homework. Ain't no extra talking. You know, ain't no, oh, well, um, I was thinking that my character, last night I was taking a bubble bath and sipping some tea, and I was thinking that, I'm like, you know what, you, your homework process is, that, that, I'm not gonna tell you about what I did last night. So professionals, they don't, carry on and put this, there's not contrivances and pretense. You, you get there, you rehearse on the set, and boy, is it, is it better. It really is better with seasoned veterans who are great actors. So, so there, is, there is no, you, do a, you, don't do, you do a table read? Yeah, we definitely do okay. a table read, okay. yeah. yeah that, I mean, that's important. Right. Okay. The most important thing about a table read is to hear the script out loud and the whole narrative and go, oh, that's working, that's not working. And everybody kind of get in their comfort zone. But the, to, to further answer your question, what I started doing, especially with inexperienced or young actors, is we'll go to, the, I'll use the rehearsal time as a time to go, all right, Nelson, you're playing Bob, you're playing Jane, and you guys know who you are. Now let's, I take them and put them in a different scenario that's not in the script. And I say, just ad-lib, even if they're terrible at ad-libbing. And so we do a bunch of scenes that are not in the script, and you figure out real quickly where their compass is as far as the character and what you see very, as a director, okay, who needs help, who, who's uh, sophisticated enough to grasp who their character is. So that's the type of rehearsals I do with inexperienced or young actors, yeah. Some, some wise man said that 85% to 90% of directing is casting. It, it, 
Uh, you- 90% of directing is script and casting. And as Woody Allen once famously said, right. 90% of doing anything is showing up. I just wanted to ask if you could formulate your dream cast of individuals you haven't worked with yet, who would that be? Wow, you know what? I don't even know, you know. Um, I don't know. You know, when I, when I look back on the films I've done, especially recently, you know, and we didn't talk about From Hell, but there was some legendary British actors in there that, that oh my God, you know, I couldn't wait to work with. Oh, Ian Holm? Yep, and uh, Sir Ian Richardson, who was famous for, would you pass me the great Poupon, you know, in the commercials, but he was very famous in his, his native country. Um, but there was an actor in Book of Eli, uh, Michael Gambone, um, who, I'm into actors, like I'll see a movie, like The Insider, he played the big tobacco guy in Michael Mann's Insider. I was like, I don't know who this dude is, but he's putting it down, and I can't wait to work with him. You know, so uh, to answer your question in an arbitrary way, I want to work with Holly Hunter. I really want to work with her. You know, um, that's that's the thing that comes. So it's 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 you know, I don't know. <laughs> All right, Ellen Hughes, thank. The film thank is you. Broken City. Oh. When and where? When and where? It's coming out. Oh, on... it's January 18th. There we go. MLK we go. weekend. Next weekend, not this weekend. You got three days to go see it.